Please stand as you are able for today's epistle lesson from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1 to 13. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son, and again, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, You founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. Like a cloak, you will roll them up, and like clothing, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, so many of you look vaguely familiar to me. Um, I feel like... uh, (laughs) In case you've forgotten, my name is Davis. Um, I feel like I've been here before. And it is so good to be with you all today. Jim Jim Hughes told me that uh, a couple of weeks ago, someone said, is it, is it just me or like the last two times that our pastor has gone overseas that he's come back with COVID? And, and Jim said, well, no, that's true. And, and then the person said, well, next time, tell him to drive over there. And um, I... Uh, on, on Friday, uh, we always come out with communications. Here's, what, who, here's who's preaching, and here's the sermon, here's the text. And I noticed, I, I don't know if it was a mistake, but it said guest preacher Davis Chapel for today. And I don't know if that was a mistake or maybe a Freudian slip, but I have to tell you how grateful I am that my fob still fits the door still opens the door and to be with you all and to say really on sharing my behalf, uh, we came to experience the power of online worship in the last few weeks in listening to Jonathan Anderson and listening to Casey Orr preach and listening um, to Jim Hughes share the word. And, and I have to tell you, just from a personal standpoint, I've heard people talk about this and, and folks who are online, we're so grateful that you're here. But I can say from personal experience that just to see the flowers and to watch people ex- extending the grace, to see the fellowship and the faces of people who are here and some of you who weren't here and to hear the music and the scripture and the preaching, um, 
I think we're better off now than we were before because we watch three services every week. Uh, we watch BUMC, we watch Noonan, where our son is, we watch Peachtree Road, and every week BUMC came in first place, of course, <laughs> followed by Noonan, which was very, very close. But it is so, so good to be with you all, especially uh, on this Mother's Day, uh, to have Mary and Brent reading for us the scripture and to recognize our seniors that we're so proud of. At 8.30, there were 30 seniors that covered the altar, uh, graduating seniors. We're, we're so proud of them, and we're so hopeful for their future. So today we're starting a new series of messages on the book of Hebrews that I'm choosing to call Anchored. Anchored. And the theme verse, if you know Hebrews, comes from chapter 6, verse 19, which says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It is safe and secure and goes through the curtain of the heavenly temple into the inner sanctuary where on our behalf Jesus has gone before us and has become our high priest forever. Now personally, I would prefer to call this series Anchor Down, but I don't want to offend my orange friends, although I'm capable of that. I'd rather not offend my orange friends but the truth of the matter is that the gospel is our anchor. The gospel is that which holds us steady, which keeps us from drifting or wafting or being swept away by the undertow of an adverse culture. It's our anchor. And to be sure what you see when you begin to read this text is that the original recipients of the message were experiencing some pretty choppy waters. And not in spite of their faith, but because of their faith. It's interesting how we often refer to Hebrews as a letter. In fact, in, in the title page of my Wesleyan Bible and probably in yours, it begins by saying the letter to the Hebrews, and yet it lacks the common elements of other letters, especially Paul's letters in the New Testament, because there's no signature in this letter. There's no salutation. It doesn't begin with a greeting or the great thanksgiving section. In fact, it's actually more of a, a sermon than a letter. Scholars of the word say that it's a sermon containing sermons, which makes you sleepy just thinking about it. It is not the most read particular passage or body of material, but it's so critical. In chapter 13, which is the last chapter of Hebrews, this is verse 22, the author defines this material as a word of exhortation. What does that mean? The word exhortation in the Greek is paraklesis, which literally means encouragement. And I think more than any other, the purpose of preaching is to instruct, inspire, and encourage the flock, to build us up in terms of our faith and witness, to uplift the body. Something else about Hebrews, Hebrews is distinct, it's different in that it is not addressed to a geographical community like Corinthians or Romans or Ephesians. Philippians, Galatians, nor is it written to a specific individual like Timothy, Titus, Philemon, the pastoral epistles. No, this particular body of material is actually written to an ethnic group, 
to the Hebrews. That is, to Jewish Christians, ethnic Jews, people raised in a Jewish family, in a Jewish home, but who now profess faith in Christ as the Messiah. In the second and third generation of the church in the late first century, as the gospel began to flourish, particularly in a Greco-Roman Gentile culture, these Jewish Christians found themselves in tension between their traditional customs and their newfound faith communities, which were becoming very diverse. In terms of the author, we don't actually know who wrote this particular body of material because he never identifies himself by name. And so some say it was Paul. Some say it was Apollos. Some say it was Barnabas or Silas or Luke. There, is, there are some who say that this was actually written by Priscilla and Aquila, but we don't know. What we do know is that the author was a colleague of Timothy who was a protege of Paul. And because of that mention in chapter 13, verse 23, we are able to date this particular material between 60 and 95 AD. So suffice it to say, this exhortation, this encouraging word was written to a second generation Messianic Jews, probably in Rome, who are now facing an uphill battle. They are under extreme pressure both from the religious community, the synagogue, and the state, the government. Some of them are being harassed. Some of them are being persecuted, ridiculed, and some are even being incarcerated because of their confession in Jesus. And when you read the letter as a whole, you begin to see that some of these faithful Jewish Christians are throwing in the towel. It's too much. It's too hard. It's too much conflict. It's it's too stressful. And therein lies the context of the congregation to whom this preacher is preaching. I don't know if you remember Dr. Tom Long, who preached here several years ago. Uh, He was preaching professor at Casey Seminary at Princeton University, and then he thought better of it and moved to my seminary, Emory University. He was my son's preaching professor. He's Presbyterian. He preached from this pulpit. Dr. Tom Long has written a marvelous commentary on Hebrews. I recommend it to you. It's in our library in which he articulates the context. And I want you to hear this. Says Dr. Long, this preacher is not preaching into a vacuum. He's addressing a real and urgent pastoral problem and one that seems astonishingly contemporary. His congregation is exhausted. They're tired. Tired of serving the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being peculiar and whispered about in their neighborhood, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going, tired even of Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 12 says that their hands are now drooping and their knees are weak. Chapter 10, verse 25 says attendance is waning in the gathering of the church and they're losing confidence. Says Dr. Long, the threat to this particular congregation is not that they're charging off in the wrong direction, 
they don't have the energy to charge anywhere. And the threat here is that worn down and worn out, they may drop their end of the rope and drift away. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk and leaving their church community and falling away from the faith. That's the context in which Hebrews is written. Now, it sounds familiar. We recognize the problem, of course. But the preacher's response here is surprising. When faced with the pastoral problem of spiritual exhaustion or compassion fatigue, as we call it, this preacher is bold enough, even brash enough, to think that Christology, our understanding of Christ, and preaching are the answers. So here's what he doesn't do, and I love this. He doesn't appeal to improved group dynamics. He doesn't talk to them about conflict management techniques. He doesn't talk to them about reorganization of missional structure or some snappy new worship service. Rather, he preaches to the congregation in theological terms about the nature and meaning of Christ. That's it. That's our anchor. The answer is not in a stiff upper lip. It's not in positive thinking. It's not in fake it till you make it. The answer is turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's in our Christology, our understanding. I want you to listen again to the opening verses of this sermon, verses one through four. It has a very high Christology, a very high understanding of the person of Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, this is in the Old Testament, many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the one, the heir, through whom God created the universe, the one whom God has chosen to possess all things at the end. He reflects the radiance, the brightness of God's glory. He is the exact imprint, likeness of God's own being sustaining the universe with his powerful word. And even after achieving the forgiveness of sins for all human beings, he sits down at the right hand of the Father, the supreme power. That is a high understanding of the person of Christ. Now, I don't have to tell you, we believe in the mystery of incarnation that Jesus is fully human, right? And fully divine. That's why we have two candles that the acolytes light, one is for the humanity, the other for the divinity of Jesus. But in Hebrews, the accent is on the divine nature. In other words, the origins of Jesus did not begin in a stable in Bethlehem. They began before the dawn of creation, and the Word was with God. The preexistence I am the Alpha and Omega, says Jesus. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. And it's interesting because this particular sermon sounds a little bit like a sermon in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers 
All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. Eugene Peterson in a paraphrase says that Christ is the glue of our souls. Here's one for those of you in the South. Christ is the duct tape of our lives. He's the anchor. We are anchored in Jesus. And so in the midst of a tired and weary generation, this preacher points the church back to the superiority, the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus. It sounds much like John's gospel. To know Jesus is to know God. And thus, we are, as the church, a Christ-centered people. So when we understand our Christology, we become clear about our ecclesiology. Let me say it like this. When we understand, when we're clear about who Jesus is, we become clear about who the church is to be as disciples of Christ. I attended a, a retreat a couple of months ago in March at Opryland with 70 pastoral leaders in Tennessee, Western Kentucky. Uh, the bishop knows how to get us there. We had rooms at Opryland. And here we were for this retreat, 70 pastoral leaders. And among the small group offerings, there was one session on spiritual fatigue. Now, doctors and nurses know something about this, teachers do, caregivers. There was one session on burnout. And I couldn't help but notice that those assembling for this session were all pretty young. They, they were clergy who had been in the field for maybe five, 10, 12 years. And so I decided to join this session, not because I was feeling burned out, but because I wanted to hear what they had to say. I wanted to hear their feelings, their discussion. And many of them were struggling in difficult situations, tough appointments with difficult relationships. And, and I, I just listened for a long time, I made some notes, and then they turned to me, and I guess it was obvious in the group that I was the old timer in, in the small group, and, and so they turned to me and one of them said, well, how long have you been doing it? And I said, well, I, I've been at it a while. How long? 40 years, I said. And then one young fella said, well, he, he's at Brentwood, he, he really wouldn't understand what we're going through. And I chuckled and I said, well, you might be surprised. And then I became confessional. I said, I, I used to have a few times now and then what I would call want ads Mondays, where I'd had a discouraging weekend and, and I began to, Sherry remembers this, began to get out the paper and look at the want ads of, of what I might have done if I hadn't been called and, and taken some kind of a real job. But I remember that at the end of those discouraging days, which would always lead me to my knees, that I would decide to give it one more week. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna keep trusting where I can't see. I, I'm gonna keep believing where I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I've been taking it a week at a time, I said, for 2,080 weeks. If you're counting, that's 14,600 days. I learned to take it a day at a time for 40 years. And then I said to them, I want you to know honestly that there's been a handful of times when I felt close to letting 
go of God. But I stuck with it because God never let go of me. It's not about my grip on God. He's my anchor. At the end of your rope, you'll find an anchor. It was Peter Marshall who once said, we, we long for life without difficulties, but we need to be reminded that oak trees grow in contrary winds and diamonds under great pressure. Anchors. I think I've also found what you have found is that, that we need some human anchors too. In every church that I've ever served, and, and there are six churches that I've served in a little over 40 years, I've never been the most spiritual person in any church, but I know who they are. I've never been the deepest, most faithful person in any church, but I know who they are. They're deeper, they're stronger, they're more prayerful, and they keep us grounded. They're human anchors. I don't know about you, but I was so moved by the graduating seniors on the video. All they were talking about was relationships. We're talking about mentors and choir directors and musicians and, and, and some of you who taught Sunday school, they were talking about friends and family who anchored them in terms of their spiritual formation. Today, more than any other day, I think we're so thankful for faithful mothers and grandmothers. They're our human anchors. And, and I told the graduating seniors at the 8.30 service, in no uncertain terms, I said, those of you who are graduating, <laughs> you know that two-thirds of that diploma has your mother's name on it, don't you? <laughs> and for many of us, if you're like me, the first altar I ever knew was in my mother's lap. Anchors. Spiritual formation and sustenance happens through the witness of those who come before us. I remember Karl Barth, the great German theologian. I understood about half of what he wrote, brilliant man of God, who was once asked by a skeptical professor from East Germany, Dr. Barth, how is it that such a learned, civilized, intelligent man like yourself could ever believe in the resurrection? To which Bart replied, I believe because my mother told me. It's a human anchor. Best definition I ever read of motherhood, here it is. Motherhood is the exquisite inconvenience of being another person's everything. Well, I see it in my daughter, who was once a rebellious teenager who now with her own son at the age of 29 is his everything. She's an anchor. I want to illustrate this and I'm finished. George and Winnie Grizzle are here this morning. Uh, I, I take every opportunity whenever I mention them to, to remind you that Winnie Grizzle was on the founding group who started Disciple Bible Study. Marvelous friends, marvelous anchors to us all. And they shared with me recently a story about a friend of theirs from Monroe, North Carolina, named Gloria. Gloria had the unfortunate experience of having to place her own mother in assisted living. Her mother's name is Ruth Wilson. She's suffering from dementia, and she's in need of full-term care. 
And I happen to have a picture. Gloria allowed me to share this picture of Miss Ruth. Ruth Wilson, she's 96. She spends her days in a wheelchair and her daughter, Gloria, comes to see her nearly every day. Gloria said, it's, it's difficult, it's hard because mother cannot distinguish me from her nurses and her caretakers. But she said the other day, I, I went into her room and as I was walking in, I noticed that she had her Bible unfolded on her lap. She was reading scripture or maybe she was just looking at the page, but she seems to be pointing at a scripture. Gloria said, I didn't interrupt her for a moment because suddenly I knew I was on holy ground. And it occurred to me as I watched her that my mother who doesn't even know her own daughter still knows Jesus. And Jesus still knows mother. When I saw that picture, I went to Isaiah 49. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can a mother show no compassion to the kid of her womb? Even these may forget, says the Lord, but I will never forget you. Miss Ruth has an anchor. In case you said last week that your heroes are delivery nurses and hospice nurses, and I'm with you on that. But I tell you today, I would add names like Julie Thomas and Katie Anderson. And those of you who volunteer in our sunny day program, you're an anchor. You're a conduit who reminds our loved ones who struggle with remembering that Jesus cannot possibly forget his own. <laughs> Even when you're weary, even when you're exhausted, even when you come to the end of your rope, God is there. And he who made you in his image, who redeemed you by his blood and sustains you with his spirit, cannot and will not forget his children. And that's my lifeline. And that's your anchor. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand all other ground sinking sand. We have an anchor and we're called to be an anchor for others, for Jesus' sake. May it be so. Amen.